Well, in the Bible, we are told to remember. Remembering is an important aspect of the Christian life. We must remember. Remember the works of God. Remember the works of the past. And this is what we are doing during the month of October. We are remembering. We are remembering what God has done in history, in particular through the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. It was in the month of October, in the year 1517, that God unleashed a recovery of the gospel. And in this particular movement of history, there were five pillars that sustained that movement. And we still celebrate those pillars today. The first one being Scripture alone. The second one, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and everything leading up or summed up in one statement to the glory of God alone. This morning, we find ourselves in the third of those pillars, sola fide, or faith alone. Last week, as we consider the, the second pillar of the Reformation, grace alone, I gave you a statement that was meant to narrow the entire issue down to its core element. And you can go back and listen to that later on if you like. And we determined that the battle uh, in the Reformation concerning the issue of grace alone was not, is grace needed for salvation? But the issue was, how much grace is needed for salvation? Is it all of grace or is it a cooperation between God and men? And we determined that as Reformed Christians, as products of the Reformation, we believe that we are saved by grace and grace alone. There is nothing to be added to that. This morning, I, will, I want to attempt to give you a sort of a, a definitional statement as we consider the third sola, sola fide or faith alone. But in order to understand faith alone, we need to attach another word to that statement, and that word is justification. Therefore, the issue we are considering this morning is justification through faith alone. And here's the statement that will serve to narrow our thinking down to the essence of the issue, and we'll try to set it within the context of the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. I have included that in your notes. It is described as the central issue. When we think about justification by faith alone, there was a central issue, and this statement comes from Lucas Stamps, who in an article titled Faith Works said the following, and you can follow along as I read, quote, the failure to distinguish God's forensic declaration in justification based on the alien righteousness of Christ and God's transformative work in what? Sanctification which produces actual righteousness in the lives of believers, was the fundamental soteriological problem targeted by the 16th century reformers. Soteriological meaning relative to salvation. In other words, when we talk about justification through faith alone, especially in the context of the 16th century Reformation, we are dealing with an issue of a distinction that the Roman Catholic Church failed to make between two words, justification on the one hand and sanctification on the other hand. What did 
And does the Roman Catholic Church teach? Well, consider with me a statement that I retrieved from their own website. This is their current position. According to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, in paragraph 1989 of their statement regarding justification, they quote from the Council of Trent, in which they concluded the following, and I quote, Justification, and this is the Roman Catholic position, please don't miss that. Justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. So we are dealing with definitions. It's like when we talk with Mormons. How many of you have encountered Mormons in the past and you talk with them? They use words like God and Christ and salvation and all those, but in reality, in their minds, these words have very different meanings. Definitions do matter. Now, let's consider some of the history. The Council of Trent, in which some of these Catholic doctrines were confirmed, happened between the years 1545 and 1563 in the city of Trent in northern Italy. Now, don't miss the timeline. The Reformation proper started in the year 1517. The Council of Trent, then, was a counter-reformation. The Catholic leaders met for 25 sessions, which were overseen by three different popes. The sole purpose of these meetings was to declare Protestantism as a heretical movement and condemn its teachings central to these being justification through faith alone. Consider with me what they wrote in the Council of Trent. In Canon 9, the Council of Trent concluded the following, and I quote, If anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, and that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and is disposed by the action of his own will, let him be anathema. Canon 11 affirms, and I quote, If anyone says that men are justified either by the sole imputation of the justice of Christ or by the sole remission of sins to the exclusion of the grace and the charity which is poured forth in their hearts by the Holy Ghost and remains in them, or also that the grace by which we are justified is only the good will of God, let him be anathema. And then Canon 12 of the Council of Trent affirms, and I quote, If anyone says that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in divine mercy, which remits sins for Christ's sake, or that it is this confidence alone that justifies us, let him be anathema, end quote. Brothers and sisters, this is infuriating. It is infuriating. It seems clear to me that so desperate was the Catholic Church to retain power over the consciences of men, as seen both in the above statements and in the selling of indulgences that they were willing to deny the freeness of salvation through faith in Christ alone. If I could paraphrase the Roman Catholic Church and their statement 
in the Council of Trent, I think it would sound something like this. If anyone says that salvation is the work of Jesus alone and free, let him be anathema, for we will not accept anyone to take away from our central role in granting salvation. If you will be saved, you must come through the church. At the end of the day, the Catholic Church needed to keep men dependent on her. But enough of that. Let us move on to what mattered most, matters most, the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching. As we consider what the Bible says regarding justification through faith, I will begin in a place that may not seem as obvious as a place to start, but I think it is critical nonetheless. So we will go to the beginning, to the very beginning of history. To know what justification through faith is, let us see what it looks like when a man knows he's not justified before God. So here's our first point. The absence of justification through faith. The absence of justification through faith. The example of Adam and Eve. The example of Adam and Eve. What happened when our first parents sinned against God? Surely they, will ex they were expelled from the garden. But before they were expelled, Adam and Eve sought to do something that reveals the heart of what justification by faith actually means. Adam and Eve, what did they do? They hid from God's presence. They were afraid. And here comes the terrifying question. In Genesis 3.9, God said, Adam, where are you? In other words, Adam, why are you all of a sudden hiding from me? And God's, as God's revelation progresses, the answer to that question becomes clear. Later in the history of redemption, it was prophet Isaiah who said to the people of God in Isaiah 59 verse 2, but your iniquities, your sins have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. Sin creates a separation between God and man. On that day, in the Garden of Eden, Adam knew this, so he fled from God's presence. Adam's conscience had been awakened to his sin, to his evil. His conscience was not clear anymore. He knew that he could no longer stand before the presence of a holy God. His own conscience was condemning him. Justification through faith is, then, the reversal of that horrific reality. Justification through faith is the reversal of that horrific reality. When a man is justified, he is granted peace with God. Not because he stops being a sinner, but because of something God does for the sinner. You see, justification is an act of God alone, but it also addresses the conscience as well, as John Owen says. According to John Owen, the central concern of man is to solve the problem of the justice of God. The justice of God. If God's law has been broken by me, and brothers and sisters, we all have broken God's moral law. So the question is, how then can I ever stand before God's presence? 
So it is a question of the justice of God. How do we obtain acceptance with God unto life for salvation? This is the central question that we're dealing with. In the garden, however, we see a shadow of what justification looks like. We are given a glimpse, which is our next point, a shadowy picture of justification through faith, a shadowy picture of justification through faith, a covering is provided. A covering is provided. As soon as Adam and Eve realized their guilt and their consciences became polluted, as soon as they realized that they were unable to stand before God's presence, they sought to do what? They sought to cover their nakedness and shame using what? Fig leaves. Their solution, however, proved useless and unacceptable before God. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, we read the following. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and did what? Clothed them. Did you hear that? God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and God clothed them. How extremely important, brothers and sisters, is to notice that in relation to the first sin ever committed on earth, the Bible says that God himself made a provision. More specifically, it says that God clothed them. He did not make them righteous. Rather, he clothed them with something that was not their own. In order to cover their sin and their shame, God provided from outside of Adam and Eve, not from within, from outside, He clothed them with something that was not their own to cover their sin, to cover their shame. God placed something on them. He clothed them. But what the book of Genesis presents in shadowy form, the New Testament shows in very clear terms. Later on, as the New Testament begins to open up and the Lord Jesus makes his expected appearance in the world, we begin to discover that the covering God provided for Adam and Eve in the garden was just a type of the true covering God himself would provide for sinners to come back to him. That covering in the garden was a shadowy but true picture of what God would do to allow sinners back into his presence to stand before him once again. And this true covering is revealed and explained in the most majestic of terms by the Apostle Paul himself in what some have considered to be the greatest theological work ever written. Please turn to the book of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, what in Genesis was a shadowy picture in Romans becomes a clear picture of justification through faith. And that is our next point, a clear picture, picture of justification through faith. When you read Romans, you get the sense of a book that is meant to be a summary of everything, of everything. It is the most comprehensive, it is the most detailed explanation of what is wrong with the world and the solution to the human plight. In fact, we could easily say that the entire book of Romans is the Apostle Paul opening up the doctrine of justification through faith in detail. And as you read Paul's theology, it quickly becomes clear 
that something seems unavoidable when we try to explain justification through faith. You can't get there without first explaining the problem. The problem stated. The problem stated. And what is the problem? One word, sin. What we saw in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve now, the Bible says, expands into all peoples everywhere and at all times. Paul explains this by making very categorical statements, such as the one we read in verse 9 of chapter 3. For we have already charged that some, is that what it says? That most, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. In other words, sin did not stay dormant in Eden as Pelagius suggested. In fact, the way Paul says it here, it becomes quite obvious that the more the earth is populated by humans, the more self-evident sin becomes. All, Paul says, are under sin, under the dominion of sin. And as I have stated before in many, many occasions, we are not born neutral, as if our hearts and our minds were a blank slate. Rather, we are born just like our parents, much like the viper. The viper cannot keep itself from producing more what? Vipers. So too, we cannot keep ourselves from begetting sinners. Sin is the one thing. Sin is the one thing we know for sure our children will inherit from us. But wait, there is more, because this presents us with a severe problem. What did the Lord Jesus say in his Sermon on the Mount? He said this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Did you hear that? The requirement for entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not only the absence of sin, negatively speaking, but positively speaking, Perfect righteousness is required. But wait, there is still more. The problem intensified. The problem intensified. And what is the word there? Law. A three-letter word. Law. As if the description given in verses 9 through 18 were not enough, Paul now turns to that which some might think is there to help the situation when in reality is there to bring everything to a devastating and final conclusion. The law is not there to save you, but to condemn you. Because as verse 20 says, through the law comes what? Knowledge of sin. Therefore, the law of God is there to stop our mouths so that we are not able to justify ourselves. We can't look at the law of God and use it in our favor. In fact, it is true what they say. Everything we say can and will be used against us in the court of God's law. Any attempt at justifying ourselves before God by using God's law will be used against us. The law of God, all of it, proves to be proves that we are utterly void of the righteousness needed to enter into God's presence. This once again reminds us of Adam. In the absence of appropriate words to say in his own defense, after having broken God's command, 
He determined that the best course of action was to hide from God. He had no excuses. He had no argument. He had no plea. Now, I see the need to clarify one important aspect of this conversation, and that is this. Are we then to think that the law of God is bad? To which we must quickly answer, may it never be. God's law, including his moral law, his ceremonial law, his civil law, is perfect and good and righteousness. It is not the law that is the problem, but the use we give to it. As one commentator said, Douglas Moo, he said this, and I quote, The problem is when doing the law is regarded as an achievement on the basis of which a relationship with God could be established or maintained. So David, for example, he delighted in the law of God, but not as the means of justification before God, but as that which guided his communion with him, which was based from beginning to end upon grace and upon faith in God's promises. But the law is never the starting point of our justification or our acceptance before God. It is, in fact, the starting point of our utter ruin. It reveals our sin. When the rain falls upon the ground, it brings up the worms that were underneath. Likewise, when the law of God is showered upon the heart, it brings up the sins that were hidden, hidden beneath the surface. The law is not meant to bring us to God. Rather, it is meant to confirm our separation from Him. So you look within yourself and there is sin. You look to the law and your sin is revealed even more. So we are finally in a place to begin to understand true justification by faith, it must come from God. So the solution granted, the solution granted. And what is that solution? What is that word? Righteousness. Righteousness. Verse 21. This is, this is the, the phrase that Martin Luther hated, the righteousness of God. He hated it. He could not understand what Paul meant. And for a long time, Luther thought of the righteousness of God as that which stands above us in judgment of us. Luther knew that he stood condemned before the righteousness of God. But one day, it all made sense and God opened his eyes to the truth. So what does it mean? What does the righteousness of God mean? Remember the Garden of Eden and what happened after Adam and Eve sinned? God gave them a temporary covering, didn't he? A temporary covering. God clothed them to cover their shame. In verse 21 of Romans 3, we learn that God once again has provided something. What is that? Let's read it. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law and the prophets, although the law and the prophets bear witness to, him, to it. What did God provide? Well, you guessed it. He provided a covering. He provided a covering. What the covering of Eden represented has now come down to us from God himself. If sin creates a separation between us and God, then God has to cover that sin. But with what? Now, are you ready to have your mind blown? 
The covering with which our sin is covered is his own righteousness. A righteousness, the quality of which is actually divine. Divine. A righteousness impossible for you and I to ever produce. If you are here this morning, my friend, and you have been trusting in your own ability to be good and righteous, then I have bad news. Because the righteousness that is needed is actually the righteousness of God himself. This righteousness must come down from God himself. So now we can begin to understand the words of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mountain, on the Mount, as having an actual solution. If the righteousness of God himself has been manifested on earth, has come down to us, then guess what? We absolutely can have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. What can be better than the righteousness that God himself has provided for us? The question then is, what is that righteousness and how do we get it? The answers are given next. The solution appropriated. The solution appropriated. So we know that the solution is God giving us his own righteousness, sending his righteousness to us. And what is the word there? Faith. Faith. We have come to the heart of the doctrine of justification through faith. Here we have justification through faith in full view. So the question remains, how is a man or a woman, a sinner, justified or accepted back into the presence of God? How is a man made right with God? Here's Paul's, Paul's definitive answer, beginning in verse 22. Through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Verse 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Verse 30, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith, meaning the Jew, and the uncircumcised through faith. So how is a man made right with God? By receiving the clothing that God has sent down. What is that? Well, we saw his own righteousness. And what is that righteousness? God manifested in the flesh. Christ Jesus, the Lord. In Jesus, we see the righteousness of God walking, breathing, speaking, and living among us. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, behold, righteousness, what you don't have, is here. What we don't have has come down to us 
from God himself in the person of Jesus, the righteousness of God walking among us. But as I have said many times to people in many places, well, good for Jesus, right? He is the one who lived a perfect life. He's the one who died on the cross. He's the one who rose again. Great, good for him. But what about us? I'm glad you asked. The only way to benefit from what Jesus did in his own person is by faith, by believing in him. And that, my friends, is the instrument by which we are made one with Christ. There is only one way to appropriate the work of Jesus, and that is through faith. You must believe. Consider how the apostle will illustrate this by the examples provided in chapter 4. The examples provided. The first one is Abraham. Abraham. And the word there is counted as righteous. Consider with me verse 3 of chapter 4. Abraham believed God. He believed his word. And it was counted to him as righteous. There is a difference between being counted as righteous and being made righteous. And here was the central issue of the Reformation and the conclusion to which the Reformers arrived. As James White has said in his book, The God Who Justifies, and by the way, I do recommend that book highly, The God Who Justifies, in that book, James White says, justification is a change in a person's status before God, not of his inner moral life. An important, important distinction. Abraham was considered, reckoned, counted as righteous on the basis of his faith in the promises of God. Likewise, the Bible says, we are counted as righteous on the basis of our faith in the promise that Jesus is the one who saves us. Why? Because faith is the instrument that unites us with Christ, and thus we receive all his benefits. Remember Ephesians chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with how many blessings? Every spiritual blessings. He has blessed us in Christ. There is no blessing apart from Christ. The question is, how do we get into Christ? Through faith. Through faith. Faith is the instrument that unites us with Christ, and thus we receive all his benefits, all his blessings. His life is for us. His death is for us, and his resurrection is also for us. Through faith in him, Christ himself becomes ours. It is his life, his death, his resurrection. Everything is accounted to us. It is ours. Consider the next example. David granted forgiveness. Forgiveness. There is something very interesting about these verses in verses 6 through 8. Notice the language. Let's read it. David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Remember? Counts righteousness apart from works. Don't miss the fact that in here, clearly, Paul is speaking of counting someone as righteous, also known as justification. That's verse 6. Consider verse 7. In verse 7, he defines what that is. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count 
count, count his sin. As you can see, in Paul's mind, justification was not about making someone holy, but about forgiveness of sin. It was a declaration. Paul equated justification with forgiveness. Why? Why is that important? Because it tells us that justification is final. It's final. How can you ever be blessed if your forgiveness is not final and total? Well, in Christ, your forgiveness is final because he took the penalty of your sins upon himself. And through faith, Christ's work becomes ours. So here are two conclusions, two conclusions that we must gather from this. And we could have gathered many, many more, but here are two that you must take home with you. Justification means to be clothed in a righteousness not our own, namely Christ's. Justification means to be clothed in a righteousness, not your own, not my own, namely Christ's. Consider what, how Paul saw this and how he explained it in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9. After giving us his religious resume, he says it was all worth nothing compared to knowing Christ. And he had one desire in Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, which was to be found in Christ, this, listen to this, not having a righteousness of my own, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Just as Adam and Eve were clothed with a skin that was not their own, so have I been clothed in a righteousness that is not mine, says Paul. As we will see next Sunday, Christ is enough. We are saved by him alone. Here's the second conclusion. Important, important distinction to be made. Justification is not progressive or infused. Rather, it is final and imputed. It is final and imputed. In other words, justification is to be distinguished from sanctification. Consider 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Paul says that Jesus has become to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification and redemption. Yes, all these terms are related to each other, but they are not the same. Righteousness is alien to us, imputed to us through faith, while justification, sanctification is within us by the Spirit. But the two are to be kept distinct. Now, having said that, we must not forget that justification and sanctification, though different, possess an organic unity. John Owen explained it this way, and I quote, The doctrine of justification is directive of Christian practice. And in no other evangelical truth is the whole of our obedience more concerned for the foundation reasons, and motives of all our duty toward God are contained therein, end quote. In other words, our entire sanctification, 
must be anchored, motivated, and empowered by the fact that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have been clothed in Christ's righteousness, because God sees us in Christ, in union with him through faith, we are free to obey God's commandments and to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have forgiveness, final, total, and complete in Jesus Christ. We have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Therefore, let us be obedient. And I will attempt to unfold that, the more practical implications of that, next Sunday as we look at the fourth sola, Christ alone. So I hope you won't miss that. Now let's bring this to a close by briefly thinking about this last question in your notes. What's a stake? Why is this so important? Well, here's the first implication of this. The first thing, the glory of God. The glory of God. When justification through faith alone is denied, we do so at the risk of doing what God himself said he won't do, share his glory with anyone else. And God won't share his glory with anyone else. If you don't come to God through faith in Jesus Christ alone, then you cannot come. The second thing is this. The the second doctrine at stake is the assurance of salvation the assurance of salvation. If any of your salvation, any portion, any aspect, any amount belongs to your faithfulness rather than to Christ alone, then you will never know where you actually stand with God. You can either stand upon his righteousness provided in Christ or your own, but don't try to stand upon both. And by the way, just in case you don't know, or have forgotten, Christ Jesus does not need your help to save you or to keep you. He is Lord. Three, the third doctrine that is at stake, the salvation of souls. The salvation of souls. When the Philippian jailer experienced the earthquake, which brought freedom to both Paul and Silas from prison, as recorded in Acts 16, he thought about taking his own life. Right before doing so, however, the Apostle Paul calls out to him and tells him not to do it. It is at this point that the jailer asks the question of all questions, the central question of all. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I don't know how a Roman Catholic would have answered that question. Join the church? Invest in some indulgences? Get baptized? Consider with me the simplicity of Paul's reply to the jailer in verse 31 of Acts 16. Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You and your household. If we miss the message of justification through faith alone, we will condemn souls to damnation. Yes, the stakes are very, very high. At no other time was this more vivid and practical than when Calvin, John Calvin, a month before his death, said to those in the room, quote, With my whole soul, I embrace the mercy which God has exercised toward me through Jesus Christ. 
atoning for my sins with the merits of his death and his passion, that in this way he might satisfy for all my crimes and all my faults and blot them from his remembrance, end quote. Do you have the assurance that in Christ your forgiveness and your acceptance is final? Justification through faith is not just an abstract doctrine that only works in theory. Rather, it is the very foundation of all our hope. Apart from justification through faith alone, there can be any hope. We know that because our justification through faith in Christ, not even death can separate us from the love of God. And finally, number four, what is at stake? The sufficiency of Christ. The sufficiency of Christ. But, as you know, this will be the focus of our attention next Lord's Day, so please make every effort to be here as we give careful attention to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith and the one who can save us. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the clear teaching of your word that the righteousness that was lost in the Garden of Eden through the sin of Adam and Eve has now been manifested in none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God made flesh. And that He is the only one who can give us the righteousness that is needed to enter into your presence fully reconciled, fully forgiven and fully accepted. And so I pray for the people in this room, if there's anyone here that is trusting in anything other than Christ and His finished work on the cross, may you bring them to see the truth, that there is salvation in no other name given among men. And I pray that they will come running in faith to the only one who can save them, the one who died on the cross for our sins. And may his name be exalted above all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.